Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Most of us feel like we have absolutely no power when it comes to our finances. We feel like we're working for our money instead of the other way around. Like, I don't think most people feel like, oh, my money is supporting my goals. Like they feel like, oh, I I can't do this because of money. I can't go to like my friend's wedding in Texas because of money. And so I think that's a big part of it too. Like it's just intimidating and overwhelming. And so, yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book. And that's sort of the entire foundation of the book, going back to having a goal. Because as you said, like, A goal basically gives you a reason to want to be good with money, so you put yourself in the driver's seat. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to Season 2 of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season will focus on disruption. From disrupting industries to old narratives and definitions of success, and even disrupting new ways of thinking. Today's guest is Kristen Wong, a journalist, author, and a woman disrupting how we think and talk about money. Today is also Equal Pay Day, a day that represents how far women have to work into 2019 to earn what men made in 2018 for the same job. We'll dive into this more throughout this episode, But one strategy Kristen and I both agree to see as a way to close the gender pay gap is salary transparency. We'll talk about what it is and how transparency can help not only you as an individual, but companies as a whole. On this episode, we'll also discuss the psychology of money, including the most common personality types, tips for determining your market value and how to negotiate your salary, and lastly, the four personality traits that might be keeping you from making more money. And now, this is The Females. Kristen, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I want to start with you briefly telling us about your career path and where your interest in money came from. Great. Yeah, it's great to, to be here. Thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm a writer. I've always kind of written about different topics. I've written about everything from like <laughs> dating and relationships to uh, career, personal finance, psychology, and stuff over the course of my career. But money has been a, um, has continued to kind of be an interesting topic for me because just personally, like it was something that I wanted to learn more about. So I kind of started just writing about it. I actually started writing about it for this blog called Get Rich Slowly. And it was 
a cool personal finance blog because it wasn't boring. It was like people telling their own like anecdotal money stories. And so that really interested me. And I was like, oh, you can write about money in this way. Great. I would love to uh, audition to write for your site. So I did. And, and that's what where I kind of started writing about money. But I've always been interested in it because I don't know, we, you know, in, in my household, when I was a kid, we grew up not having much money. And luckily, I had parents who were pretty financially savvy, like they were interested in learning more about their own personal finances and how to get their money in order so they could move up in the world. And I got to witness that and see that, you know, if you learn a little bit about money, it can actually make a pretty big difference. So I feel lucky that I had that influence. Mm -hmm. When you, uh, before you started writing about money and learning about it, were you financially savvy or did your finances and like you know, how you manage them and everything change as you kept writing about this and really researching money topics? Yeah, the latter. I was not great with money. <laughs> I started writing about it. I mean, I was okay at like saving and being frugal and stuff. But when it came to the more, um, the more difficult financial topics like negotiating, investing, I knew nothing about that. And I wasn't even that great at saving. But it was sort of just a way to kind of figure it out for myself and I learned a lot as I would start writing about it. And then eventually I started really get, you know, per, in my personal life, getting into investing, getting into negotiating and all these like higher level money topics. And then I started writing about my experience doing that. And I think it really resonated with a lot of people because it was like not somebody who is like pointing fingers at them and judging them and saying, here's what you should do. It was someone who's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this seems to be working. And um, I think, it, you know, that resonated with people. And then, you know, soon enough, I would get requests from other publications to write about these topics for them. And then, you know, the more I researched and learned about it, the more I understood, you know, money is actually pretty accessible for most people. It's not as difficult as you think it is. Right, right. That seems to definitely be like some an assumption that everybody has, or at least most people have, is that it's hard or I'm not very good at it. That it's like we seem to already always have our assumptions already made about that. And then as you get older, hopefully that starts to change. And I know one way that you're you know helping people to to change those assumptions is you wrote a book called Get Money, Live the Life You Want, Not the Life You Can Afford, <laughs> which I love. Uh, <laughs> because afford being the keyword there. Um, I guess why did you want to write a book and one what are some of the key takeaways from your book that help people really manage their personal finances, especially as you said, like, you know, you didn't grow up being a money whiz per se, and you kind of learned about it as, as you got older. Yeah. Well, I kind of decided to write the book to, for that exact reason, to show people like this is actually a lot more accessible than you think it is. The world of investing, like there's so much jargon involved and the financial services industry in general, I think pushes a lot of people out of the conversation with, whether it's on purpose or not, a lot of people say it's on purpose with that jargon by making it seem like you can't learn about your money, we have to help you. And so I wanted to write a book that made personal finance accessible for people. I would have a lot of friends who would come up to me asking me really specific questions about money that for me sounded very obvious, but they really had no idea. And I would always say like, I wish I just had a book that had everything I knew about money in it for you. And then I eventually said like, well, maybe I should just write that book. And so one of the key takeaways of the book that I think kind of sets it apart is that the backbone of the book is really about having a goal for your money. So we talk about a lot of like the practical stuff in the book, but then there's also the this, this psychological, behavioral, habit-based 
behavioral things with money, you know, because so much of it is behavior. And I think one of the big reasons why people tend to not be so good at money is that they don't have a good reason for doing so, right? Like you can make a budget. That's not the hard part. Most of us know how to like use Mint or YNAB or whatever. Like we can find, figure out a way to make a budget. It's sticking to the budget that we have a hard time with. And I think if you have a goal, if you have a reason, a really specific, meaningful reason to be good with money, then it's going to make it easier to do the, to stick to a budget, to be frugal, to want to invest, to be motivated to negotiate and do those things. Um, You know, a lot of people might be like, oh, my goal is I just want to pay off my student loan. But like, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, why do you want to pay off your student loan? For me, it was, I want to pay off my student loan because I'm tired of, I want to do other things with my money, like travel. So that was like my goal for wanting to get out of student loan debt. So that's sort of the backbone of the foundation of the book is like, let's figure out why you picked up this book in the first place so that you actually do the stuff in it. And then the stuff in it is kind of like, I talk about this concept of game called gamification, which is this sort of business strategy that companies use to manipulate consumer behavior, but you can use it to manipulate your financial habits for the better. Um, And basically, it's just making personal finance kind of a fun game so that you actually want to do it. Yeah. Can you give us an example? Like, what would be a game with your money? Yeah. So, like, one example that probably everybody's heard of is, like, the 52-week challenge where you save a dollar more each week. And so you challenge yourself to do this. And it's small increments, but you slowly start to feel more in control over your money. And that feeling of being in control then makes you want to keep doing it. So, you know, there are just different ways you can do that with your money, whether it's visualizing your goal. A lot of people, um, I read about somebody who had, they were trying to get out of debt. So they, you remember those like paper links you used to make like in first grade? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would have like a hundred dollars written on each one of those links. And then as they were getting out of debt, they would take one off so that they could visually see their debt be, like going down. Wow. So just little, you know, little hacks like that. And there are fun, like little rules that I like to, that I kind of stick with to make money easier uh, for me. In, in the book, I talk about, like, for example, there's the dollar per use rule, which is don't buy anything if, um, like, calculate the cost per use of anything you buy. So if you buy a coat that's $400 and you live here in Southern California where it doesn't really get that cold very often, maybe you wear that coat. Um, Four hundred, you know, four times out of the year. Well, that code is now costing you a hundred dollars per use, depending on how long you have it, right? So right. that's a very stupid example, but like you basically break down the, divide the amount of time, amount of times you're going to use something by its cost, and right. if it's a dollar or less, then it's a good thing to buy. I mean, it's just kind of a rule of thumb. These things aren't like there's no science based in this, right? It's just kind of something you use to make better purchasing decisions. Another one that I really like is the save when you splurge rule. So if you have like a problem spending area, which most of us do, like Amazon's a big one for me, I can go on Amazon and just fill up my cart and buy a bunch of crap that I don't even know what it is until it comes in the mail. Yeah, it's the new Target for sure. (laughs) Target is another one for me and TJ Maxx. But so what I do is I save when I splurge. So if I buy something that's $20 at Target, well, that now costs me $40 because I'm going to have to put $20 in a savings account. So I sort of punish or reward myself for splurging, depending on how you want to look at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I'm curious too, because I I think 
one of the best things about all the things you just said is that it makes people think before they buy or think before they spend, which is important. And I think that that's sometimes just as you were talking about, like the psychology behind it, it's like getting in the right mindset of, you know, do you really need that coat or would you rather travel to, you know, Mexico with your friend and, and, you know, later this summer or something like that. Of course, you're probably going to choose Mexico. So then it makes it really easy to give up the coat. But I'm curious too, when in, when you were writing the book, did you talk about the fact that a lot of people have shame over money? So either shame because they feel like they don't have enough or shame because they have a ton of debt. Like I, you know, I've, I've talked to a friend before where, um, you know, she feels like I have so much debt. I don't make enough money. Like who, you know, like how am I ever going to get my life together? It's like she she has the shame that she carries around because of that. So did you touch on that stuff in your book? Yeah, that's like the entire first chapter because I think <laughs> – Right, of course. That's, like the biggest, that's the biggest barrier for people is like there's so much judgment, shame, embarrassment around money. So what people do is like who wants to learn – like why would you ever want to learn about money or talk about it because people – like the shame is not – unsubstantiated people are judging you for your money habits all the time so and then I think you know it's also it's hard to get past the shame factor because you don't feel in control and I think that's a big part of it is like most of us feel like we have absolutely no power when it comes to our finances we feel like we're working for our money instead of the other way around like I don't think most people feel like, oh, my money is supporting my goals. Like they feel like, oh, I, I can't do this because of money. I can't go to like my friend's wedding in Texas because of money. Right. And so I think that's a big part of it too. Like it's just intimidating and overwhelming. And so, yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book. And that's sort of the entire foundation of the book, going back to having a goal. Because as you said, like, a goal basically gives you a reason to want to be good with money. So you put yourself in the driver's seat. So you're doing this for yourself, not because, well, I guess I should get my financial life in order. I'm in my twenties or I'm in my thirties now, you know, yeah, you're doing it for you. Right. A hundred percent. And I think with your book, with the tagline, you know, the things that you can afford, I definitely think people will be like, well, my salary is only this. I can only afford that. And as you said, I mean, I guess how do you, is the only way to get out of that cycle to just get a larger salary or can you get out of that cycle based off of where you are today? And I think especially when you live in a city where everything is expensive, you know, it, it it's like you said, like when I'm 30, I'll get it together. But like how, how can you stop that cycle? Because I'm kind of interested – over, you know, I'm sure you researched this in your book, but what are the long-term effects of being stressed and anxious about money in your life? Well, I think the long-term effects of being stressed about money are probably the long-term effects of just have, being stressed in general, which is you get burnt out, you get depressed, you get anxious. The bigger of a stressor it is, the more you want to avoid it. And then it just keeps going in the cycle of like, I'm stressed. I don't want to deal with this. It gets worse. I'm more stressed. I don't want to deal with this. It gets worse. So, you know, I really think a, a lot of traditional personal finance advice is really like, oh, well, if you just get your finances in order and you learn how to budget and you learn some personal finance 101, like you'll be good with money. And I don't really agree with that. I, I do think like, yes, you need to learn those things. But for most people having, especially in our, the current state of our economy and just the changing job market, for most people, the answer is more money. And I think that's 
we really need to recognize that if we're writing about money, because if you look at this, I mean, we'll get into this, but if you look at the statistics on income inequality in the U.S., like it's staggering and it's hard to look at that and then be like, oh, but if you just learn to make a budget, right. you'll be okay. Right. And I think um, that's that's how a lot of people feel. It's like, no, I having the budget still doesn't create more money. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I can exactly. write it all down and know where it's going, but that doesn't mean there's necessarily more of it. And so that's interesting. You also talked in your book about money personality types. Can we go over those? Just because I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. And this comes from a financial psychologist named Dr. Brad Klontz, who's kind of studied. He is actually a certified financial planner and a psychologist who's worked with um, clients. And so based on his research, he found that people pretty much fall into you know, four different money scripts, as they're called in the psychology world, which is kind of just your behavior attitudes around money, money personalities, if you will. And so they are money vigilance, money status, money worship, and money avoidance. That's probably the most popular one, actually. So money avoidance, you just you don't want to deal with money at all. You probably even think like, oh, money, more money, more problems. Money is greedy. I don't need to earn more this money is bad. It's the root of all evil. That's money avoidance. Or money avoidance is like, oh, I know I busted my budget, but I really, I just don't want to look at it. I just avoid it. Like sticking your head in the sand kind of thing. Exactly. And then money status is, a lot of people think it's just, oh, people who like to spend their money on like Fendi bags or something. And I don't really think that's what it is. I think it is like you spend money, you think of money as a way of you think of it as part of your self-worth almost. So the more money you make, the more worthy you are. If you don't have money, like you feel less than. I have a friend who makes considerably less than uh, her sister, I think she said. And she says she sometimes feels like less important, you know? And so that's money status. When you confuse net worth for self-worth, money worship is like when you think money's going to solve all of your problems. And oftentimes people who grew up without a lot of money are like this. This is mine. <laughs> you think, oh, well, if I just had more money, everything in my life would be perfect. Right. And going back to what we were just talking about, in some ways, yes, money is going to solve all of your problems. But on the flip side of that, it's not going to solve every problem. And it's not the only solution is earning more. So money worship, but money worshipers think that it is. They think that more money is this the solution to every problem they have. Mm-hmm. And then there's money vigilance, which is like, these are super frugal people who are afraid of losing their money. They're usually better with money than the rest of us, but they, their vigilance can backfire on them when it comes to things like making career, taking career risks right. or investing because they're terrified of putting their money in the stock market because it can be scary, you know? So that's money. Those are the four money personalities in a nutshell. Wow. It's very interesting. And I'm sure everyone listening, just like you're like identifying right away with a type. Uh, so it's really interesting. And yeah. I do think with the, the one you were talking about where it's associated, you know, net worth and self-worth, I think that's probably very popular because I, I definitely think a lot of people as they're working in salary, it's, it's very much intertwined, right? Like their self-worth is very much intertwined to what their net worth is. So that's very fascinating. And, and speaking of money, uh, well, today represents equal pay day. Um, and just in case anybody is listening and doesn't know what that means, it's actually the date that symbolizes how far into 2019 
women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year, 2018, because on average, when women make 20% less than men in April is about 20% into the year, which for a while, I, I didn't know what that day meant. I mean, not until I was actually working at Career Contessa. So it's probably not as common as, as I think it is. Obviously, working at Career Contessa, we're very aware of this day. And I also want to be sure to mention that specific equal pay days for women from different racial and economic backgrounds um, because the wage gap does differ depending on race. So today I think is is how all women compare to white non-Hispanic men, but Asian American women, it's on March 5th, 2019, because they have an 85, 85 cent uh, gap. Uh, white women, April 19th, because theirs is a 77 cent uh, gap. African American, black women, it's uh, 61 cents. So they don't actually have this day until August 22nd. Native American women, September 23rd with 58 cents. And Latinas, November 20th, 2019, because it's a 53 cent gap, which is, I mean, Kristen, let's talk about this because like this is insane. It's 2019. Women are not paid equal for doing the same work. But also what I hate about this day is the fact that women also, as I just pointed out, are paid you know, like Latinas don't even have equal, they're at 53 cents. And so what, what do we do about this? I mean, are we going to be talking about this for, you know, years to come or what, what are your thoughts on equal pay? I mean, I hope we're not talking about it for years yeah, to come. I really. think the, the first thing that needs to happen is people have to acknowledge it because there are a lot of people who still don't think this 100%. is a hundred percent. We still have people that will tweet us at career Contessa telling us that we've made this up. And it's like, <laughs> I'm it's okay. Ridiculous. Me and, and all these other news outlets are reporting this research. We're not making this up. Well, they try to, the thing about wage gap deniers is that they try to deny, they try to give reasons why it exists because you can't deny that the gap is there. There is a gap. You see how much, one group earns for something, then you see how much another group earns for something and a big old gap between the two. You can't deny that. But they try to say like, well, it's because women don't negotiate as much, which some there are some studies that show that's true, but there are an equal amount of studies that show that that's not true and women actually do negotiate just as much. Then they'll say like, oh, well, there, there, there aren't as many women in higher paying positions as if that's an okay thing. Right, <laughs> you know? right. That's what we so, hear a lot. They'll say, well, women don't take the jobs that are uh, require as much risk or this report might be re uh, comparing, you know, lawyers and doctors to uh, an hourly worker. And you're like, that's that's not how these reports work. Like that's right. that's not how any of this works. So I know you and I are both in agreement that one of the ways to close the gender pay gap is through salary transparency. So let's talk about, from your opinion, why salary secrecy is is really probably worse than many of us think, too. Yeah, because I think that goes into acknowledging it. Because if you don't know that there is a gap, it's so much easier to deny it. And I think a lot of times people have unconscious biases toward race, toward gender, and they might not even realize it until you put the numbers in front of them. And there's a lot of research that backs this up. I wrote about this study that made me so mad that came out recently. They interviewed black job applicants and white job applicants and asked everybody to negotiate. But the black job applicants were seen as more aggressive negotiators. People thought they asked for more money when they didn't. And then if that's not like infuriating enough, they then penalized them. They gave them lower starting salaries because of that. 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So like they, so like this, and the thing is like the people in the study, I, I guarantee you they weren't like, oh, well, I'm racist. And so that's why I'm doing this, right? right? Like nobody thinks that they are, they have these biases, but they do. And until we start talking about salary openly, well, inequity just festers. Right. Because when you when you are transparent about salary and you can see what one person is making versus another, it's it's easier to sort of point out these system systematic institutionalized disparities. Whereas if they're secret, well, then you just never know that they exist in the first place and it's easy to deny it. Right. So step one is make sure everyone understands that there is inequality. Uh, the gender pay gap does exist. And so step one is knowing that it exists. Step two is what we're talking about, salary transparency, which a lot of people are very uncomfortable talking about money. So I know at Career Contessa, we have our own salary tool. It's, it, it's an anonymous salary database. It's called The Salary Project. It's free. You can go on and use it at any time. And we literally give people access to thousands of real salaries where they can look at it. But I always tell people like that is one tool on the internet. One of the best things you can do is talk to people directly. But you and I both know people don't like talking about money and they certainly don't like sharing their salary. So what's your advice when it comes to transparency, both for the employee and then what should you be thinking about or doing as a manager? I think as a manager, you have to be aware that there are laws that prevent you from penalizing your employees for sharing salary openly. Like you are legally allowed to talk about your salary openly at work. Um, There should be nothing stopping you from doing that. That's the law. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that you don't get penalized for that as an employee, right? Like right. you, you, your boss might not like it and might like guarantee they're probably not going to like it. And they're going to ask right. you who told you that, you know, especially if you go and you use that as part of your negotiation. Yeah, exactly. So you can't blame people for being afraid to talk about their salaries openly. But there are ways you can kind of um, approach the discussion in a way that doesn't make them feel like an unsafe, basically. So you can say, you know, I'm, I understand if you're not comfortable discussing your salary openly, but I'd love to get your feedback on what you think, you know, X role could command. What kind of Uh, I'm going into a salary negotiation and I was wondering if you could offer any feedback about what you think um, I should be asking for, something like that, you know? And I think it's also important if you're going to ask somebody to share their salary or encourage them or suggest that they should share their salary, you should be willing to do the same thing. And I think it's important to make sure that it's in a safe environment with somebody you can trust and that you make yourself available as somebody that can be, that can be trusted too. I mean, that's why I like a lot of these like salary whisper networks and that I think resources like career Contessa are great because you, you, it's not just about having the information there. It's about meeting other people that you feel safe around where you can have these conversations. Hey there, let's take a quick break from today's show so I can tell you about Rothy's shoes, the most comfortable flat you can wear all day for any occasion. I hate when I buy shoes that look great, but then they need weeks of breaking in time before I can actually enjoy them. Rothy's aren't like that. Rothy's shoes do not require any breaking in time so you can immediately enjoy them. I know this because I wear my Rothy's almost daily, including the weekends. I have a pair of flats in black solid that are great for work since they are a quick way to add polish to my usual jeans and blouse uniform. And on the weekends, I love to switch to my camo gray sneakers and some yoga pants. It's a more stylish way to run errands in comfort 
or I can even meet up with a friend and power walk to brunch, all within my sneakers. Rothy's also has numerous color and pattern selections. The lineup is always being updated. Next on my list is the point style in a bright spring color. You'll want to check these shoes out and share the love with all your work wives. And for your royally obsessed bestie, you can even let her know that Meghan Markle slipped on a pair of Rothy's during a recent trip to Australia. I promise I'm not making that up. Not only do Rothy's look good, they're good for the environment. They are made from plastic water bottles, and so far, Rothy's has almost reached 20 million bottles recycled. You can also machine wash your shoes, which will help save your wallet because you won't have to buy a new pair every time they get dirty. Bottom line, I love my Rothy's, and I know you will too. Right now, Rothy's has an amazing deal for you listeners. Use code FEMALS, F-E-M-A-I-L-S, to get free shipping with no minimum. Go to rothys.com and enter females to get your new favorite flats and free shipping. It's a no-brainer. Shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable with free shipping. Yup, that deal was made for you. All right, now let's get back to the show. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting you called it a whisper network because this is such a like secret topic is how much money people make, what they're going to go in and ask for. And it does feel like some people get access to that information and other people are still trying to find it. So I, I think I guess one of my questions is if you're not part of a whisper network, so let's say, you know, you're transitioning careers and you don't know anyone in that industry or anything like that. I mean, would you recommend can you can you talk to peers that are in different industries and get their opinion? Or can you ask strange, you know, quote unquote strangers on the internet? I mean, what, how do you, how do you build your own whisper network? I guess is my question. I mean, I, I think it's probably best to talk to somebody who's in your industry and has insight, but you know, it can't hurt to have some kind of network of other peers, like-minded people who might be in different you know, different stages in their career might be in different industries who can at least just offer some kind of support, some kind of accountability and some kind of insight. And then I think it's important to go to networking events and go to conferences and, you know, join career networks and and talk to people and meet people who are in your industry too, so that you networking is so important in general, but especially when it comes to stuff like this, that there's no like blueprint for, it just helps to have a support network of people that you can trust and that you feel safe with and that you can talk about these things openly with. Mm -hmm. I had a friend once too. She was uh, moving industries and uh, what you said just reminded me of this. And she basically, she emailed me and said, I'm doing salary research. I'd really love to talk to so-and-so who I saw you're connected to. Is there any way you could connect me? So you can also do this with a cold reach out, but I mean, the, it's, a, I guess, a warm introduction because I knew the person, but also who in your network might know somebody that you might be willing to share? Because I do think salary, sharing your salary has become more popular than, you know, obviously 10 years ago, it felt like nobody was talking about money. And certainly I do think there is more discussing about salaries because people realize like, oh, by sharing this information, it's actually really helpful. They're not doing it to be nosy, which is a, a completely different viewpoint. And I, my views also on salary transparency and I'd love to hear what you think is like, I don't necessarily think that companies need to publish everybody's salary in an Excel list. Like I'm like, when I say salary transparency, I don't mean that, but I do think there could be more salary transparency at companies about how they come up with the numbers. Like how did they come up with your base? How do they decide who gets more from the base? You know, and that's the the area that I think that there could also be more transparency around. Not that I need to know how much Kristen makes exactly, but I'd love to know like 
okay, these roles, they make something around this level. And I wonder if that would also help with this too, because it also feels like sometimes you think with your employer, like, do they just pull this number out of thin air? And and because oftentimes you will, you'll go for an interview for a really similar role and they're either paying a lot less or a lot more. It's like, there seems to be no like one plus one equals two. Like there's no logic here sometimes. And I'm curious, what are you, what are your thoughts on salary transparency for within a company? Like, should everyone know what everyone's making or should we just be able to know how the number, how they come to those numbers? Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. Like my gut says, well, I don't need to know what Jane Doe's salary is at my company. Um, But I would, you know, I would like to see what this role earns. Right. What is the salary behind this role? And actually, there's data on this that in, I guess it's probably a lot of like uh, federal worker, like public employees, where salary is transparent, the gap is smaller, um, which I think is really interesting because when you don't have a set salary for something and they are kind of pulling these out of the air, I mean, they're not, but it's like based on. Right. It feels that way sometimes. It feels that way because it's based on like, your experience, your skills, supply and demand, how many other people are interviewing for that job. And so it's really easy when there's not like, oh, this is how much this job pays when there's not like a set in stone salary for it, then it's easier for discrimination to kind of right. to blame, like to blame it on something else to be like, oh, well, you know, Sally doesn't get paid less than Don because of her gender. It's because, uh, the, you know, because when he was interviewing, there weren't as many people. He was in higher demand. You know, like, right. it's easier yeah. to kind of blame it on stuff like that. So I do, I mean, research backs this up. The more transparency you have, the smaller the gap is going to be. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it always, doesn't the research also show that you're going to, like your employees are more engaged or more committed? Maybe it's both. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's also data that the research that shows it's the opposite. And sometimes employees might get resentful, uh, you know, depending on it just depends on, I think, the job and the salary. Mm-hmm. There's also research that shows sometimes, you know, so there are two sides to this coin. I read an yeah. article in The New Yorker way back in the day that was like, um, when salary transparency was first becoming a thing where they're posting CEO salaries. And so these CEOs are making crazy amounts of money, but they found, and so people were like, oh, we want to see what these CEOs are making. But then when they actually posted those salaries, people were more tolerant of them getting paid more money. So they would actually make more money when their salaries were transparent. <laughs> so it wasn't really helping anything. Right. But I mean, <laughs> of course. But, but yeah, I think for the greater, I think it's more for the, like, yes, you, maybe it would make you more productive. It would make for happier employees. And I do think there's data that backs that up. But I think the big picture is just like closing the gap. Right. Like just the, the inequality that still exists. So I want to talk about negotiation because you mentioned those were also money topics that you got into. And I think it's really important to talk about that today because on equal pay day, there might be a woman out there, or I'm sure there is a woman out there who has not only realize that she's being paid less for the exact same job, but now she is getting ready to go negotiate. And it's probably not a very good tactic to go in there and say, hey, I'm being paid less than so-and-so, pay me the same as him. So what, (laughs) especially through your studies, and I know you've interviewed a lot of women, you know, what are your tips for successfully negotiating your salary? 
I think in that situation, you're right. You probably don't want to be like, hey, I found out this person is making <laughs> yeah. less, is making more than me. What's up with that? Um, but you do, I think, want to make it known that you know what your value is and you're aware that somebody else is out earning you. And you can do that in professional diplomatic ways, like um, saying, oh, from my research and discussions with other people in my role, I've found out that I should actually be earning uh, 5,000 more a year in, in my current role, you know? So there are ways to kind of approach the situation, but I've also interviewed people who have just straight up told their employer, Hey, I found out this person was making more than me. What's up with that? And gotten what they wanted, um, kind of putting their employer on the spot, which I'm not suggesting that anybody do that, but I'm just saying people have done it. I had a situation where I found out, and this was like in my very first job, and it was another uh, female worker, that she was making out earning me. And we started on the same day. And so I approached my boss about it. And it, it did, I did not get a good response. And I didn't even call out my other employee. I just... I think she put two and two together that she's like, oh, Michelle got a raise and now Kristen's asking for a raise. This is interesting. And so she reprimanded me for verbally just saying like, this is why I don't like you talking about your your how much you make. And I'm like, why? So you can pay us less. That's exactly why. Yeah. But yeah, you know, t bring the conversation to your employer's attention. I think you don't have to hide behind the fact that you know that there's somebody out earning you, but you also just don't want to throw that person under the bus. Right, right. We have a, a script on Career Contessa. It's called the Gimme Script, and it's uh, literally lays out step by step how you can ask for a raise. We did not put in there for you to say I was, you know, I talked to so and so, and he makes more than me. But I do think one of the things that has worked well uh, in the past for me with raises is letting them, like, reminding them of what I've accomplished and what I want to work on in the future. And I think that is a good balance, especially if you're going to throw in the fact that, and I've been talking to other people, and I know that. I'm I'm being paid less for the same job. Like it's kind of like the compliment sandwich. Like you can put mm -hmm. the, the not so great thing for your manager to hear in the middle and then, um, sandwich it in between, like, here are all the great things I've done and all the good things I want to do. But I, I guess also when it comes to salary negotiation, what's the difference? And cause we talked about this earlier, you said there's some re research that says, um, women don't negotiate as often. I'm with you. I think actually women do negotiate. They just don't get it as often. What's yeah. What do we do there? Yeah, that's that's actually that's true. Women negotiate as often as men. There's a 2017 study that showed they negotiate just as often as men. We do. We just don't. We get rejected usually when we ask. And um, why is and so that? I, like, was there anything that like is it just bias? Um, I mean, I think it's because women, and and this is what researchers kind of surmise: it's that women aren't socialized to be assertive. We're socialized to be the peacekeepers and the, um, the, the sort of meek and mild and make sure everybody's okay and just kind of smile. And we're not expected to be aggressive or assertive. And you definitely need to be assertive when you negotiate. So, that, so then when we do negotiate, we're perceived as overly aggressive, um, as unlikable, because it's not, it's not a trait that's expected of us. Um, and so I think you were kind of, you hit the nail on the head with bringing the focus on your value, because that's really what negotiating should be about. It's not personal, it's business. It's 100% the value that you're giving them, you're bringing to the table. So I think it's extra, I think it's important for anybody to 
keep the focus on that when they're negotiating, but it's extra important for women because people sort of have this tendency to personalize it when women are assertive and to make it have to do with their, you know, interpersonal skills and their social skills. And, oh, well, she's just, just so difficult to work with just because she asked for a raise. So you really have to kind of bring the conversation back to, well, here's the work that I've done. I, you know, quantify your successes and your achievements and and bring that and document it and bring it to the, you know, your negotiation so that they're reminded that this has nothing to do with you being unlikable or aggressive, or it's just, I'm asking to be compensated for my professional value. Right. Right. And you wrote an article in the cut and it was called the four personality traits that keep you from making more money. So I want to talk about what those are, because if anybody, you know, I think overall the goal of this episode is to not only talk about money and personal finance and equal pay, but also I think if people are recognizing they have certain traits, like what can they do about it, you know, and how can they um, kind of take action? So what are those four traits and, and what do we need to know about them? Um, it's been a long time since I've wrote this, so I, <laughs> I checked it out before you. Let me just pull it up real quick. But these traits come from a book that I read and recommend called uh, Secrets of Six-Figure Women by Barbara Stanny. And it's basically the secret is, like, you need to lean into negotiating a little bit more. And that book, like, really changed my own career life because I was – I was like not making a lot of money at all because I'm a writer and like writers are kind of notorious for not making a lot of money. And then I read this book and she in this book talks about nine traits of under earners and under earners are people who, for whatever reason, aren't living up to their earning potential. It's not people who are in jobs that don't pay well and are, you know, if you are a social worker, okay, chances are you're probably not making $100,000 a year. That's not necessarily what an under-earner is. An under-earner is a woman who could be making a lot more, but is holding herself back. And so she talks about some of these traits. And I covered four of those traits in the article that resonated with me most, and I think probably resonate with a lot of people most, but there are actually nine of them. Um, But one of them is a high tolerance for low pay. So she says that high earners make darn sure they're well compensated for their time and work, but it rarely dawns on an under earner to set her sights on a higher salary. So like for me, I was a writer and I was like, oh, okay, like that's just, we don't make much money. I make eight cents a word. That's normal. You know, so I had a high tolerance for low pay and I was willing to accept that. Under earners have a tendency to underestimate their worth. And I would always have people in my family tell me, like, you need to really value yourself. You undervalue yourself all the time. You need to ask for what you're worth. And I would roll my eyes and be like, I'm not worth much, you know? Right. And when I actually read this book, I went, I did this little experiment where I negotiated with all of my current writing clients and then my new ones. And because I thought it wasn't going to work. I was like, this is ridiculous. Writers don't make much money. And that's just the way it is. Again, I had a high tolerance for low pay. But just to like prove the point, I negotiated and every single client that I negotiated with said, yes, we'll give you more money. Wow. And it proved to me that I had a tendency to underestimate my worth because I'm like, wow, it was so easy for you to say yes. That probably means I'm like, way underpaid. You know what I mean? Right. Another trait was a willingness to work for free. And that was a hundred percent me. Like I would always, and I still kind of do that, do this to this day where if somebody wants me to do free work for them, I'll try to somehow justify it doing the work in my head instead of 
my first thought should be like, no, <laughs> you know? right. my first thought should be like, um, no, I need to get paid for my time and my effort. But even to this day, like I had somebody approach me about writing an article for them recently. And they're like, unfortunately, we can't pay for this. And it, my initial thought was not to just be like, sorry, can't make it happen. Then my initial thought was like, okay, well, how can I do this for them? You know? Right, right. And then the final trait that I wrote about in that piece is a fear of negotiation. And that was 100% me. I was and I still am. I do it anyway, but I'm terrified of negotiating because I feel like it's a confrontation. I feel like I'm being greedy and it's not. You're just asking for what you're worth and getting, and they're getting something out of it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think also it gets easier the more you do it. Maybe you're always uncomfortable doing it, but it's like, you, you know, you know, you can do it. You've had the successes before and all of those wins do add up. Well, Kristen, this has been so interesting. And I, I love that you study kind of the human psychology behind money as well. And definitely some takeaways here are negotiation and making sure that women are negotiating and aware of the the pay gap and, and how to start talking about money more. I want to end with some rapid fire, which are just fun, uh, one sentence, one word um, answers here that we have. So the first question is, what are you doing after this interview? Uh, I was going to get some work done, but I actually got my work done right before the interview, which I'm happy about. So I will probably take my dog for a walk. Awesome. I, I thought maybe you were going to say Netflix or something. I was like, oh. that's what I would be doing. Okay. Um, that sounds better. I'll do that. <laughs> um, no, you should definitely take your dog for a walk. Much healthier okay. than what I was suggesting. Um, <laughs> if you had unlimited funds, how would you spend your time? Um, I would probably, I mean, I really like what I do for a living and I feel lucky and fortunate that I get to do something I really enjoy for a living. So I'd probably do more of that, but I would outsource a lot of stuff that a lot of tasks that I don't really enjoy doing, like invoicing or accounting, stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. I would, um, I would definitely get a driver. I live in LA and I have a long commute and I always tell people, I'm like, if I get to splurge at some point in life, I want to, I want a driver. (laughs) That's a great idea. I think that's definitely a a commute heavy person's like answer too. Um, your superpower would be, um, probably I'm pretty good at taking criticism. Like I've gotten better at it. I used to be really terrible at it. And now I sort of welcome it. I like constructive feedback and criticism. I'm um, sensitive to it, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I kind of look at it as a way to grow and evolve as a human being. Yeah, that's great. It's a, it's a very important trait and I think a, a really difficult one. Um, and how do you plan to disrupt your career in 2019? Um, you know, something that I've been trying to work on a lot lately is just having more fun. I think I'm a bit of a workaholic. And I was reading uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah, she definitely. Writes, mm-hmm. She writes about workaholism in this. And, you know, it's workaholism for me has always been something that's like, oh, well, what's so bad about that? You're addicted to work. Work is great. You make money at it. It's a great addiction. But mm-hmm. it really can get in the way of, like, your creativity and just enjoying your, like, I, sometimes it's hard for me to have fun. I don't know if that's something that most people can relate No, I, to, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we have terms like burnout that are used a lot more today yeah. than probably ever before. Yeah. So, and I think like it's actually good for your career, good for you in the long run to just learn how to let go sometimes and have fun. So I'm trying to learn to do that more in 2019, just 
take a step away from my work so that I can rebuild my creative muscle and come back to it and do it better. I love that. Well, Kristen, thank you so much uh, again for joining us today. And your book is called Get Money and everyone can uh, get with it and get your book. And uh, thank you so much again. Of course. Thank you. That was Kristen Wong, author of Get Money and a Woman Disrupting Money. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Females and leave us a review or share this episode on Instagram. We love to reshare your posts and share your reviews right here on this podcast. Ready for some salary transparency? Check out our free anonymous salary database called The Salary Project. In less than 10 minutes, you can gain access to thousands of real salaries and see how yours compares. I included the link to The Salary Project in the show notes, but you can also visit careercontessa.com and start looking at salaries right away. I'll be back next Tuesday with Lauren Smith Brody, author of The Fifth Trimester. But until then, you can follow us on at Career Contessa on Instagram. Share this episode with your work wives and Instagram community with hashtag the females podcasts and listen to this sneak peek of next week's episode. And then the other thing is what I was saying earlier. I wanted everyone, everyone who ever hears me give a talk or anybody who reads my book, I want them to know that, yes, I can help you through these other, you know, through this network of women. I can help you figure out how to move up in your workplace and change policy. But it is just as important to just stay in, put one foot in front of the other, get your job done, but ask for what you need, the flexibility you need, and be open about the challenges because we cannot solve a problem we cannot see. 